Startup exits are the most sought after events in Silicon Valley, but very few people get to experience them. Welcome to the Startup Exits podcast, where we chat with founders that started, ran, and sold a tech company to learn about how it all went down. This podcast is brought to you by Startup Soft. Hey everybody, this is your host Andrew Vasilik, and you're listening to Startup Exits, where we chat with founders that started, ran, and sold a tech company to learn about how it all went down. And today I'm joined by the founder of Kixai, uh, Will Harbin. Welcome to the show, Will. Thanks for having me. Kixai is a game studio that some would consider a pioneer of the free-to-play genre. Some of your games were incredibly popular back in the day on Facebook. Uh, for those of my remember, titles such as Backyard Monsters, Battle Pirates, War Commander. Uh, you guys had millions of users and hundreds of of employees. Uh, the company was eventually acquired by Stillfront for $120 million. Um, you have a very diverse background. Kixai is not your first rodeo. How did you get started? Uh, Kixai or just in general? Just in general. Like, What was the beginning of your career like? Um, well, probably makes sense to go back longer than when I got my first job. I mean, I've always had a passion and passion for technology, computers, programming, gaming, especially. I started, I think I wrote my first line of code when I was five or six years old. My, I was fortunate enough to go to an elementary school that actually had a computer lab. This is like 1981, 82 or something like that. And they actually, uh, we had someone there who taught us Apple basic. <laughs> and I remember the, one of the first things that we did was uh, learn to make this uh, kind of ASCII rocket ship go up and down the screen. Um, and I was kind of hooked after that. So, you know, from that point forward, I was basically consuming any amount of technology I could on my Apple IIe, every game I could get my hands on, and any sort of software app that was affordable and accessible to me. Uh, you know, in high school, I was even doing some, um, you know, small, you know, programming consulting gigs. So it's computer science major in college. But I was kind of burned out on coding at that point. Well, I wouldn't say burned out. I'd say the kind of coding that I was doing was not that interesting. You know, at the time, I you know, learned to code specifically to make games and things for fun on the side. <clears throat> but uh, you know, my plan was to make a whole lot of money and retire and then early and be able to just play video games for the rest of my life. But um, didn't quite go down that route. Uh, so... You know, my first real entrepreneurial experience or endeavor was, let's see, I think it was the summer after my junior year of college. This is kind of when the, the first dot-com 1.0 uh, phenom was going on, you know, Netscape had IPO'd, and then you had all these other pre-revenue tech startups going straight into IPO. And, um, you know, eventually we, we know how that turned out. But at the time, it's like everybody was handing some kid who knew how to code money. So I was not excluded from that. So I recruited a couple people for my summer internship and raised some money from some local entrepreneurs and started a company um, that eventually came media first. Um, yeah, at the time, I don't think I'd be able to really tell you exactly what we did. We were all over the place. We were doing, uh, let's see, we had some e-commerce stuff, some e-learning things. We tried to make a search engine. Uh, eventually, it whittled down into an e-learning platform. Uh, but I decided to abandon that and finish school. They went down their path. Um, and then when I graduated uh, from Vanderbilt University, this is uh, you know, summer of 1999, uh, the market was still pretty hot. 
but you know my resume didn't really you know didn't really lend itself to much in terms of hey give this kid some executive job somewhere so i took a took an engineering job in atlanta for a company called internet security systems which was a pioneer in the uh, online security space they kind of invented or they did invent intrusion detection so basically at the time you know security was all about firewalls and uh and virus protection um or antivirus and then Internet security came along and did a bunch of different stuff. So I hung out there for a few years. The market had crashed. Um, I eventually got a job at um, at AOL and part of a team restarting Netscape. Um, you know, in, in between these times, I was trying a bunch of things on my, you know, on the side of my desk. Um, we had this uh, kind of contact card e play thing for. Uh, high school and college kids that didn't work out. Um, did a beverage company that did sort of work out, but more on that later. Um, so, but didn't quite have kind of a stable platform footing. It was very hard to really go out on your own for the first time and try to uh, to do a business. You really have to have somebody funding you, or you got to have very wealthy parents, or you can kind of take the time and not have an income. It's kind of the same profile of a lot of people who can take an unpaid internship. <clears throat> um, or if you previously made a bunch of money and decide to pivot your career. So it's, it's, a, it's a, there's a non-obvious route on how to really kind of get that first start. And I really didn't see a route other than trying to get in with the right talented people and maybe they take you with them. Otherwise, I'd end up with kind of a, a patchy startup like my first um, play with, uh, with Media First. Um, and it didn't really go anywhere because we didn't have people around the table that had really done that sort of thing before. So eventually I caught the eye of a, of a talented young executive named Jeremy Liu, who was at AOL at the time, <clears throat> and he was restarting Netscape. You know, AOL had purchased Netscape, and it kind of, um, uh, well, it didn't, it, it went a lot of different directions, but they kind of shut part of it down and they wanted to restart the browser, restart the web portal and some other things. And so I kind of saw this is my chance to get with um, some Silicon Valley players, even though it wasn't in Silicon Valley. So lucky for me, I was one of the few people who was willing to move to Columbus, Ohio and take this product management gig uh, for the Netscape browser. <clears throat> and that kind of you know, got me introduced to a lot of the right people. I eventually got recruited to come out to San Francisco. And, um, you know, and that was one of my last kind of four hire jobs. Um, then I met, you know, my future co-founder, this guy named Chris Michael, through Jeremy Liu. Um, uh, Chris had started military.com and he wanted a second bite of the apple after selling military to Monster. And um, we decided to start a company called Affinity Labs. And that was really my first legitimate, you know, I'd say, you know, big time entrepreneurial experience. And everything prior to that, like I said, was a little bit patchy and scattered off the side of my desk. But this was, you know, my first real chance and what I've been looking for. We had established Silicon Valley uh, VCs, another entrepreneur I could be paired with who had done this before, had a successful exit. And it had kind of the makings of, of really what I wanted. It was kind of, a lot of you know, what I brought to the table was around, you know, engineering management, product management, and, you know, other than the prerequisite of just having good entrepreneurial drive and willing to work, you know, 120 hours a week and not do anything else. Um, <clears throat> but also a, a real opportunity for me to learn uh, from my, you know, now good friend, Chris, 
on how things were done in terms of raising money, storytelling, uh, scaling, growing a business, and ultimately selling that business or having some sort of liquidity event. And selling and having a liquidity event aren't necessarily the ideal goals to have in mind. And that necessarily wasn't our goal at the time, but obviously you've got to pay yourself. Um, but you should really have your sights set on just making a big company that matters and, you know, liquidity events will hopefully naturally follow in that, in, in that pattern. So fortunately for us, um, Affinity Labs did pretty well pretty quickly. And we had acquisition offers, I think, within nine months of us starting that company. Um, you know, I think, I don't know if it was the right decision or not to, to, to sell. It wasn't necessarily 100% my decision. But we did take an offer from, at the time, Monster Worldwide. If you remember them, they were kind of the number one jobs board. They're still around. Uh, but a bit of a shadow of itself and kind of got dominated by LinkedIn and others. It's funny. I was, I remember being in a boardroom with, uh, with a bunch of the old guys who kind of inherited monster worldwide. They weren't the original founders. The original founders were pretty brilliant guys. Um, but this is kind of the, the B team that was running the show. And <laughs> we were talking about LinkedIn and, they were just poo-pooing all over it. You know, classic incumbency syndrome. They didn't see it as a threat. They were just comparing their revenue to theirs. They didn't really see the scale that that sort of thing had. So um, incumbency syndrome is real. And so that's something I'd like to talk about a little bit later as applied to Kixi. Uh, so, you know, we, acquired, we were acquired. I spent about a year and a half running that plus some other divisions of Monster and found myself in that position where I dreamed about you know, maybe a decade prior when I just wanted to make a bunch of money, retire early and play a bunch of video games. Uh, but I didn't find myself with that sort of desire. I was having some life changes at the time. Um, I'd gotten a divorce from my first wife and, you know, moved out of my house, sold the company, um, kind of really on a bit of more, you know, self-discovery. But instead of doing a whole eat, pray, love tour and traveling to Bali or India or whatever, I really wanted to start a company that I was very passionate about. Gaming was something that I've been passionate about for my entire life. You know, I mean, I don't remember the very first game I played. It was probably Zaxxon on ColecoVision, um, or it was probably seeing Pac-Man or something like that in the arcade back when that was a back when that was a thing. But you know, gaming had always kind of stuck with me. I was mostly a PC gamer. Certainly played consoles, but I loved. Uh, RPG games and RTS games, um, and I was playing. You know, some of the first MMORPGs was an early alpha and then beta user of Ultima Online, which is kind of the predecessor for EverQuest and World of Warcraft. A uh, huge Command and Conquer fan and, Star and StarCraft player, uh, and I saw you know what I thought would be a, an ideal entrance for me to get into gaming, where it would marry a few of the things that that I had built some expertise around, uh, which, you know, is this free to play Facebook gaming phenomenon that was happening, but it was pr predominantly dominated by casual players. You know, it was all about Farmville and other kinds of farming games or some spreadsheet games, a la mafia war and some other things, but there wasn't really anything with any real gameplay, anything that looked great. You know, the idea that I had was to leverage you know, these, the free to play model, the distribution model of Facebook, the marketing muscle of the Facebook ad platform, which at the time, almost none of the 
game makers really understood how to leverage. Nobody knew how to buy Facebook ads. It was kind of a new platform. And my previous company did a lot of Facebook ad purchases. We were effectively a, a lead generation company. So I understood you know, the user acquisition game very well, <clears throat> understood consumer product management, understood kind of live ops and consumer services. Didn't quite understand you know, game design. I knew what I liked as a player. I thought I understood what made a good game loop. But I was pretty much unfamiliar with with game making. So, and I didn't see anything on Facebook that appealed to me as a player. Um, you know, I didn't want to play Farmville. I, mean, I certainly installed it like pretty much everybody else in the entire world. Uh, and you played some virtual poker and things like that, but poker isn't that interesting to me. You know, I wanted something immersive, um, and I saw a lot of isometric view. Uh, Facebook games like Farmville, and you know, kind of reminded me of an RTS. And technically, you know, there are elements of an RTS in Farmville, but mostly it's just the resource harvesting and gathering piece. Obviously, notably absent is the base building and the combat and all the other things that make it fun. It's just the tedious part. And I, I still don't really understand why everybody played it, but obviously, resource collection is a very powerful mechanic for millions of people. Um, so I saw that as a bit of a proof of concept. I knew one, there were millions of people like me on the platform looking at Facebook every day. Um, it was very accessible. Um, you could build a relatively lightweight app pretty quickly and get it out there. I saw a proof point and it was, it was odd to me how there weren't games that really appealed to me. And I thought it was just a lack of kind of, you know, development will to do this stuff. So I set out to try to start a company to do this. Um, it was relatively hard for me to break in and find people that wanted to make games with me um one all, all the existing game developers turned their nose up at facebook and free to play they stuck to consoles um or pc games and they didn't want to take a chance on that so luckily uh jeremy Liu, um if you recall that i worked for him at netscape and AOL, who's now very famous um very famous venture capitalist and at lightspeed venture partners snapchat and also Kixon and a bunch of other uh, notable companies, had seeded um, my now co-founders, uh, David Scott and Paul Priest, and a company back in 2007 called Casual Collective. You know, Paul had become famous by doing basically the first commercialization of, um, of Tower Defense, a game called Desktop Tower Defense. And Dave had made a few interesting Flash games and the two of them met at a LAN party. And they were just, you know, classic um, uh, game developers. And they were kind of, I'd say, people of multi-talents, uh, Dave. In addition to being a game designer, he was coding, doing his own art. Uh, Paul was basically doing the same thing. I mean, he's even making kind of sound effects with his microphone and things like that. They were kind of, they, were, they each were kind of a one-man army doing these things, but they lacked any real business direction. So long story short, Jeremy had given them seed capital back in 2007, and they were out of money. And when Jeremy heard that I wanted to make a video game company, <clears throat> he tried to introduce me to them. It legitimately took about six months to a year for the two of them to remember who I was after uh, several meetings. And they were both extremely socially awkward people. Very nice, but um, we're a lot more comfortable with online communication versus face-to-face. -face. And they didn't know much about business or the concept of, of profit or scale or KPIs or unit economics or funnels or product management or 
you know, basically anything other than just making these small encapsulated flash apps um, that happen to go viral. Um, so we kind of eventually, when they started to remember my name, um, uh, we agreed to team up and effectively restart the company when it really wasn't a company. Again, it was just the two of them plus one engineering contractor, and they were out of money. <clears throat> and uh, they agreed to, you know, redo what they were doing and try to take advantage of free to play and Facebook and um, kind of the whole platform. Uh, they, yeah, I, I saw, you know, obviously I like tower defense. It definitely has some parallels with RTS. Um, and again, I'd ultimately wanted to make some sort of, you know, 24 seven persistent theater of battle RTS, uh, that was accessible to everybody that was free to play. Um, and, and the first, you know, embodiment of that was backyard monsters. Dave had been working on what was codenamed, um, uh desktop creatures i think it was called it was kind of a very boring version of, of backyard monsters it had some it was mostly dev art and not much was there, was some resource collection and some uh base uh placement uh, i don't think the combat there was any sort of combat system in yet but we took kind of the, the bones of that and pivoted and i wanted to make something more modern military uh, but we were definitely being pushed more towards casual and accessible. And Be yeah, before you guys released like any of these big titles that the Kicksai has made over the years, uh, was the original intention of the game, uh, like f Facebook gaming in a way is a paradigm shift, right? right? I mean, you, it was this new platform, uh, huge number of users, uh, very, I mean, the barriers to entry are much easier. So a lot easier to distribute the product. Like you mentioned, you know, it's easier to market as well. Um, was your intention initially to focus on uh, on Facebook gaming right away? Or was did you guys start off as kind of a, a company that was making games and then you saw the opportunity with, with Facebook gaming and then decided to take advantage of it? Or was it more like, you know, let's make a company specifically for Facebook games? Yeah, so I wanted to make, I, I was extremely intentional in that I wanted to make free-to-play uh, browser-based games <clears throat> um, and specifically strategy. So... You know, they were making games, they were making browser games for their own site, casualcollector.com. They didn't see the opportunity with Facebook. I don't know if they were discussing it or not. I can't recall. But no, I mean, I was kind of the, the element in that recipe that was very intentional around, okay, we're going to restart your company, create a new company, and specifically take advantage of the Facebook platform. So, yeah, I mean, everybody saw it. I mean, we were kind of late to the game. Um, this is the end of 2009. Farmville certainly already had its footing and it seemed like already a saturated ecosystem of people very wrong. Um, but so, yeah. And when you say that you wanted to create um, browser, casual browser games um, or free to play, sorry, casual games, was this a, a, like a kind of a personal desire from a point of view of a player? Like, is this something that you would enjoy uh, as a player or was there yes. a kind of a in, business in, opportunity that you saw as well or a mix it's both i mean i always like to find the intersection of what i enjoy doing and what makes money i think the mistake that a lot of entrepreneurs and people in general make with their careers and lives is that they chase one or the other exclusively they only do what they're passionate about without regard for how it's going to feed them or they do what only uh, makes money and they're relatively miserable, miserable and, and unsatisfied. So, you know, this is kind of part of my early midlife crisis and that you know, I wasn't that passionate about 
previous company I did. Um, so I wanted to make sure that I would do something that I was extremely passionate about. And I saw that um, people were, some people were making money hand over fist and the bar was relatively low in terms of what was working from a content perspective. So I, I thought that if I could take my passion and make a quality game, um, you know, it's not going to be as great as, you know, a full session of StarCraft. <clears throat> We'd certainly have to make some concessions in order to make it work and free to play. Um, I was trying to find that intersection of kind of passion, um, ability to be successful from a, you know, monetary or financial standpoint, for sure. And Kixai certainly uh, gained a lot of popularity on Facebook. Um, yep. Did you have now? I mean, the company is different. I mean, Facebook gaming is pretty much dead. You guys have diversified into um, browser-based games to mobile-based games. Uh, but at the time of like 2009, 2010, when really you guys were growing popularity, you were exclusively on Facebook. Um, was there any sort of concern in the back of your head about being too reliant on a single platform? Yeah. I mean, at the time, until probably 2011, 2012, there really wasn't another option. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's why, you know, mobile wasn't really an option yet. The, the app store um, <clears throat> was in its very early innings. It didn't have as much adoption as it has now. And the horsepower on the phone couldn't deliver as much as you could via flash and on a, on a PC at the time. So, you know, options were limited. And remember, I was talking about kind of incumbency syndrome. Uh, that was a real problem for us. I mean, we were absolutely crushing it. I mean, we went from zero to having, you know, two of the top five grossing games on Facebook in, in the span of, you know, a year and a half or something like that. And meanwhile, you know, Facebook was making kind of life difficult uh, for developers. Um, you know, we had the advantage of having extremely high monetization per user, um, much higher than, than anybody else. So we could afford kind of the curveballs that Facebook was constantly throwing at the developer community and that they forced Facebook credits on everyone. At the time, there were no Facebook credits. Nobody was taking a cut out of anybody. Uh, you know, Facebook was basically just generating ad revenue or selling ads to people to, to get people into the game. Um, so, you know, they launched Facebook credits and all of a sudden forced everybody in and started taking 30%. So that's, uh, that's, that's not good if you're a company that already maybe just had a 20% profit margin off of this. Um, and then all of a sudden, uh, they're negative 10%. So how are they supposed to survive? They didn't seem to care, but it worked for us because we could absorb it. Um, and advertising got more expensive as the platform got more saturated and we didn't really care because we were kind of king of the castle, king of monetization. And we didn't really see Facebook going away. Therefore, we didn't really see the Facebook platform going away. But there was a lot of things kind of at play. One, Flash was getting very unpopular. Uh, it's kind of a memory hog. You know, Adobe was not doing a job of keeping their best and brightest on that tech and keeping up with things. Apple had rejected it you know, at the time. I think it was in 2000. 10 that you know steve jobs had decided that uh flash wouldn't be allowed on any <laughs> any apple mobile device um and they weren't going to support it so it's kind of the nail in the coffin for for mobile so long story short we didn't really have any sort of incentive to leave facebook uh because things were great we were growing I mean, we were growing like two to three hundred percent year over year um with pretty big numbers you know 
nine figures of revenue, very profitable. And uh, times were good. And then, you know, times started to not be good when the whole world, you know, basically one developer does not make a good platform. So all the other developers basically bailed and got in early on mobile. Advertising was super cheap. Um, they were able to build their audiences fast. And, um, you know, some people copy the things that worked on Facebook and put it on mobile first. And looking back, it's a super smart strategy. And it was, it was hard for me to kind of deal with that because I really wanted to focus on making some original content. And again, I was trying to balance, you know, what made money and what satisfied my personal passion. Like I did not like mobile as a gaming platform. I didn't like the idea of having a small screen. I wanted to, the whole thing was I was trying to deliver, I, my original vision was to deliver ultimately a PC-like experience <clears throat> without having a big download, um, something that you should pop in and out of, maybe at your work, you know, workstation at the office or your laptop at school. You're not in front of your console. You don't have as much time anymore. You can go in for short sessions, but you can get, you know, a very rich 10-minute gaming experience and then log back on an hour later. And I didn't see the ability to have a very rich gaming experience at the time on mobile. So I kind of rejected it for a number of reasons. One, again, that we were very successful on Facebook and the success wasn't stopping. And, uh, and two, it just didn't deliver the level of fidelity that I wanted. Meanwhile, the ones that were struggling were the ones who ultimately became very successful on, on Facebook, uh, on, um, on, on mobile. So you look at Supercell and King, Supercell especially, you know, Supercell, uh, they had a, a very nice looking game on browser called Gunshine. I remember this very well. I remember when Excel kind of funded them because we're having uh, fundraising conversations at the same time. Um, and that's how they got on my radar because Excel had made an investment in them. And so they were, they were I was tracking them and they launched a very good looking game called Gunshine. But I remember laughing because I, thought that they had no idea what they were doing when it came to free-to-play monetization. It was a very well-made game, um, but it was just kind of linear content that didn't have any sort of sandboxy open world, didn't lend itself to premium currency or whatever. They, they did not fundamentally understand um, the concepts, basic concepts of what drives monetization and kind of long-term you know, retention. And so surprise, surprise, you know, they failed there and they're, you know, probably feeling the pressure. Oh my gosh, we got to do something. If I were them, and I see this new greenfield experience, okay, we got mobile. Let's copy Farmville and Backyard Monsters. Boom. You know, the rest is history. They were there at the beginning, and they didn't just copy it. They did very good. I mean, they made a better version of Backyard Monsters. I'm not going to say that they they were hacks and did something bad, <clears throat> but um, you know, Clash of Clans was a was a better version of Backyard Monsters. It was on mobile uh, very early, and um, you know, they built a $10 billion business because of that one very smart move and, and good follow-on experiences. So, um, you know, we knew that we'd made that mistake. The problem is we were, we had a huge company at the time of Flash developers and you can't just flip a switch and all of a sudden start writing native code on iOS or switching over to Unity or whatever. It took a long time. We were making PC games, we were making VR games, um, and we had a couple of mobile studios, but we weren't getting off on the right foot. You know, we, we, we scaled 
horribly wrong at the time. So this is probably 2013, 2014. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I could certainly write a long book on what not to do when the market <laughs> pivots. Um, so, yeah, fun times. And it's easy looking back, right? I mean, when you're in it, it's these decisions are not, it's not definitely not, not, not anywhere near as clear as it is kind of looking back. Um, I- well, I'd, I'd actually disagree with that. I would say, you know, when we were in it, I knew exactly what was happening. And we were, I was trying desperately to, to steer the ship. Um, but like I said, you can't retool a company of hundreds of people overnight. So I kind of saw the writing on the wall that we were you know, basically screwed on being able to redeploy all these resources. <clears throat> um, so I knew the answer and I knew what we needed to do, but we just could not move fast enough. It was a far cry from the early days of the company where it was basically me, Dave and Paul and a few other guys turning out a game inside of a few months and you know, those days were over we built this hardly inefficient uh, development company um, where we had like 50 people on a, on a title and it just did not move well so you know i fully knew what was happening but to be able to just snap your fingers and fix those things they're basically impossible I mean, that's why you saw so many uh, people that's, that's a big advantage that startups have right i mean over like yes. huge corporations that are uh, when you're a startup you have the agility and the flexibility that a big company uh you know maybe not 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 always would have uh i, I want to ask and this is something that you, that you touched upon uh briefly about uh kicksai is known for having a very high uh, degree of monetization. So you guys have a very high degree of revenue per user, uh, very impressive, I don't know if you can call it kind of unit economics, things like retention versus some of your com- uh, competitors, even though you guys did not have maybe as much users as they did. Um, how did you get to this level of kind of high degree of monetization? Because at the at a, at a fundamental level, a free-to-play game is optimized uh, and is tailored for players that will never spend any money. And you need to bring in these kind of users essentially by the boatload. But at the same time, you have to kind of optimize for the whales. And the whales in the the gaming community are the small group of people who spend most on a game by a wide margin. So these are the people that really are bringing in the revenue. So how do you balance this where you have to optimize the game both for people that are never going to play spend any money or maybe going to spend insignificant amount of money and uh, the, the the group of whales that are going to spend the, the, the bulk of your revenue? Yeah, so look, I mean, the, the game is definitely not one size fits all. And you can't, you know, make it please everybody. So our general philosophy and approach is that you have to have one of two things to play our games. You either have time or you have money. You know, you don't get everything that you want passively. You're either working for it and you're playing the game or you're spending money. And so, you know, that translates to a few things. One Every item in our game can be had for free, technically, you know, with your with your time playing. You know, we don't. We fundamentally don't believe in having a lot of kind of spender-only content and gear because <clears throat> that kind of sours the ecosystem and don't really build goodwill with that sort of approach, in my opinion. And I, you know, I wanted to have. I want the game to have some semblance of balance to where it's not, you know, fully paid to win. And, you know, you can't really claim our games are pay to win because, again, you can have everything free. It might take you a long time, um, but uh, you don't get any inherent advantage just by spending money. And if you spend money, you you level up into a tier where you're you're mixed with other people who have spent a lot of money or been playing the game a lot. Longer. You don't just spend a bunch of money, get to stay in your same tier, and then get to wallow on. Um, 
So, you know, we don't, ex- we didn't ex- ever explicitly try to appeal to whales. It's more of the game is just basically uncapped. And, you know, we're continually, you know, laying down the tracks to the rail, you know, railroad tracks for content. Um, and it's just about kind of having a game that's, well, let me back up. You've got to have kind of the right match up between your marketing, your, right, so your marketing practices, your marketing creative with what the actual game is and the experience. And you have to have everything kind of lined up initially. You know, for our ads for the most part have always been just in-game captured video or images or whatever. We don't, you know, show a bunch of pictures of chicks in bikinis or have a bunch of, um, you know, CGI narrative stuff that's an artificial representation of the game. It's like you you see what you get, basically. So it starts there to make sure that we're delivering on the initial advertising promise when somebody clicks on the ad and opens the game. Two, there's just got to be a very tight relationship between kind of progression, monetization, um, and kind of your second to second, minute to minute, hour to hour, day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year gameplay. Um, you know, you, you don't come in and layer in monetization. You're basically taking the existing kind of RPG loop, you know, the grind loop of, um, you know, exploring, researching, upgrading, tacking, repeat. Um, it's just instead of it, you know, monetization is just allowing you to those without as much time to bypass certain things. That's it. Right. Just the ability to effectively accelerate time to gain more power. But again, like if you have good level balancing um, and good, um, you know, matchmaking, you know, you're not creating kind of a, a pay to win atmosphere. So, you know, certainly you want to make sure that you're, people feel good about their purchases. I think I know a lot of free-to-play makers that were, again, just basically marketing companies in disguise as game makers. Uh, they would explicitly try to exploit loops to make people feel bad in order to pay. Uh, it's kind of, it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. You know, I wanted um, people to feel good about their purchases and almost like they're kind of rewarding the developer and they're getting something turn to play the game more, get access to content that they don't have quite enough time to get access to. So there's a lot of differing philosophies that I have versus a lot of other people. And now, you know, look, we're not the absolute best at it. Uh, there's certainly others that I'm sure have shattered you know, monetization records. I've heard some crazy numbers coming out of Chinese gaming companies. Um, I don't know if they're, they're true or not, but um, you know, we found that it worked for us. Yeah, so the approach it wasn't like a freemium kind of model that some app makers make, where it's like uh, some app makers implement where you have the free version of the app and then you have the paid features that you can only get if you pay. But in your case, you know, everybody can enjoy the same thing. It's just maybe you're going to have to grind more, you're going to have to spend more time, or you could just pay and kind of speed things up. Uh, I want to draw some parallels between running a gaming company and a startup. Uh, mm-hmm. So you mentioned this in the, in the beginning of the episode is that you have uh, an entrepreneurial background that stems back to your college years. And uh, one of the first real companies, uh, as you put it, was Affinity Labs that uh, got acquired very quickly uh, by Monster for uh, 60 million bucks. So that's yeah. not a small acquisition. Uh, the second company you were also 
also involved in called Function Drinks. Yeah. Uh, also got acquired by Sunsuite. So you have a pretty solid entrepreneurial background and then you go on and you start a gaming company. When you were running Kixai, uh, were you looking at it, were you treating it as a startup? Like, was there a lot of parallels between running a startup and running a game studio or was it, was it, was it very different? Oh, I mean, no, it's, it's for sure a tech startup. I mean, it's not, it's just like any other content tech company. You know, people are like, oh, gaming is a hits-driven business. Well, everything in tech is a hits-driven business, depending on what kind of, you know, the, look, the majority of our employees were engineers. We were certainly a, a tech startup. It was a classic Silicon Valley VC uh, company. I mean, Electronic Arts, you know, was, was an early uh, VC-backed tech startup funded by Sequoia, and, you know, started by our board member, my advisor, and good friend, Trip Hawkins. Um, you know, there's a big history of, of gaming in Silicon Valley. And uh, granted, you know, the VCs don't seem to come around until there's a, there's a market shift. So they're very interested in Facebook. You know, you can't go and raise money for the most part if you just want to start a, if you've got an idea for a new PC or console game, it's probably not going to happen. Um, but no, it, you know, of course it was a startup. I mean, we had, um, you know, we started with sub, Subleased office space for, you know, I think six of us in downtown San Francisco. Had another sublease across the street on California Street, and then started growing and did our A round and B round and C round. Um, it was kind of for sure classic venture back startup story. So when when you're running a game studio, um, you it almost feels like a new each new game is almost like a startup of its own. I mean, sure, you're sharing a lot of the back office and a lot of the resources, uh, but it's uh, it's a new concept. I mean, it could be targeting different people. Uh, you have to validate it and kind of go through some of the startup fundamentals or the lean method and things like that. So when, you, when you're raising money and you guys raised quite a bit, you raised 40 million, uh, were you raising, were, are you banking on finding one title that's going to carry the whole company or is the idea to have like a portfolio of decently sized titles? Yeah, I mean, so this is one of the mistakes we made. Um, and one, you know, we weren't a game studio. We were a full game company. We published everything. We were a collection of studios. Um, you know, typically, you know, I refer to a game studio as just a, a single title company with no marketing or publishing or any other expertise other than the straight product development. So we were far more than a game studio. But, um, yeah, so initially, we were highly iterative on a micro level and a macro level. So by that, I mean, you know, we did backup monsters, we kept iterating the game until we got the KPIs and kept going and going. And then we did kind of the next point of iteration, which was Battle Pirates, which had elements of backup monsters that we had the MMO piece to it. <clears throat> and then we had kind of a, a middle point. We're kind of triangulate, we were, at the time we were trying to triangulate on you know, the perfect level of retention and monetization and so you had Backyard Monsters, which was very high engaging retention, low monetization. You had Battle Parts, which was extremely high monetization, but lower engagement monetization. War Commander, which was kind of in between. Um, you know, we didn't see ourselves as taking a lot of risk when Dave, Paul, and I were doing those titles. We started taking a whole lot of risk when we thought, wow, this is really easy making these games. We can do whatever we want. We've got the magic touch. And then somebody started taking an incredible amount of risk. Um, you know, all the titles um, after, I would say, Vega Conflict and up until War Commander Rogue Assault were just kind of throwing darts at a dartboard 
um, spending way too much money on unproven stuff and unproven platforms. And that was the, the wrong way to do it. I'd say, <clears throat> you know, a good entrepreneur always takes extremely calculated risk and iterates off of what they know. It's just like having any sort of investment portfolio. You got a personal investment portfolio, you don't put everything on black or red. You spread things around, you've got X percent on high risk, you've got this on medium risk, you've got this on low risk. Um, and that's where we deviated, and that's where we got in trouble, where we just put everything at high risk without really knowing it. So I would say you absolutely can have a broad portfolio of things that work, but you have to take the time to get there. And they've got to be very strategic, selective moves versus just throwing stuff up against the wall, which is a problem for a lot of larger gaming companies where you've got executives that don't understand gaming. They hand the reins to you know, a non-owner, creative head. Um, and you know, that's why you see huge flops from, um, well, you don't see it as much anymore. You, see a, you used to see a bunch of them from EA and Activision. <clears throat> until they started to reinvest in existing IP and what you know works. You know, that's why you see so many versions of Call of Duty um, and uh, where you used to see so many versions of Warcraft or Starcraft or whatever and all these sequels. Uh, that's the right way to build a portfolio. And then every once in a while you launch something new. Um, so we didn't do that. And that's why when we shifted to mobile, it was very hard for us because we didn't have a lot to um, cross market off of you know, to reinvest in. We didn't have any good IPs to really, um, you know, translate over. So, I mean, there, there were a lot of issues. Uh, but, uh, you know. And I mean, no, no company is, is you know, and not, not, there's, I never met a company that everything went smoothly. So that's, uh, the, the end result for, for Pixi was certainly successful. You guys were acquired for 120 million by Stillfront Group. Uh, can you speak a little bit about how this acquisition happened? How did you guys get involved with Stillfront? Did you guys have a relationship prior to that to the acquisition? Yeah. So, and actually, technically, we didn't fully exit. So, <clears throat> um, yeah, we sold the we sold the brand, and we sold the live operating portfolio. Um, yeah, we we effectively split the company up. Uh, and is you know me, Dave, and Paul, my CFO, my chief marketing officer, and um, the very talented team that had been working on a, a game. Remember, I was telling you that you know we saw the writing on the wall that we were doing things a lot of the, a lot of the wrong way. And about five years ago, <clears throat> I spun out a team. I took you know Dave and Paul, who were kind of scattered across the company, working on a bunch of different stuff. I put them back on the same team together reporting directly to me, took the best engineers in the, in the company and started working on something brand new and trying to replicate kind of the, the early success that we had and the way that we used to develop products. So basically, I, I, I sold <clears throat> everything except for that. So kind of the heart and soul of what made KickSci uh, special and created all these new titles is still intact and part of our new company called Global Worldwide. So, you know, still front, the acquirer wanted um, the, the brand kicks I was fine with it. I didn't care. Um, you know, they wanted, uh, they really just wanted War Commander, Battle Pirates, Vega Conflict, and War Commander, Rogue Assault. Um, we, we had our pick of what else we wanted to keep. Uh, so, you know, I've been talking to a number of people trying to figure out how to get the company to the next level. You know, I, ideally, I didn't really want to split the company up. 
I was either going to sell the whole thing and pack my bags and go home. Um, it was going to take a very large investment to launch our new game called Kingdom Maker. And that was really what it is. I mean, I'd say, you know, the thing I'm working on now, which is called Kingdom Maker, which has been a test market for a few months, is really the culmination of the last decade of learnings that Dave, Paul, and I have had, um, lessons from the mistakes we've made at Kickside. And yeah, net net, it was, it's all good. People made money. And, but it certainly wasn't the outcome that it could have been. I mean, it, was, it could have been easily a multi billion dollar outcome had we moved to mobile earlier, not done a lot of high risk stuff. Um, but so anyway, uh, you know, we were, we were fully running a process looking, casting a wide net. Uh, with a banker looking at investment options, acquisition options, and um, <clears throat> in something that I thought kind of landed in my lap where this company still front was looking for stuff that uh, had solid profit and longevity. And the you know, company as a whole didn't fit that pro- profile because we were investing a whole lot of money and effort into the new kingdom maker and that wasn't out yet. Um, so we pitched them the idea of like, well, what if you just take our live operating studios and then, you know, we split off and, and do our own thing. And so, you know, they went for that. It uh, seems like it's been pretty successful for them so far. And they're continuing to do their roll-up strategy and buying some other great properties. And, you know, we got what we wanted. So, you know, the, and yeah, I'm, I'm back to what they would be others would be perceiving as taking a lot of risk, but I don't see kind of what I'm doing right now is taking a lot of risk because it's a space that I know extremely well. <clears throat> Dave, Paul, and I hold the reins. Um, you know, the game that we're doing certainly uh, bases itself a lot of our earlier success and then grabs some things of what other people proved to be successful. And then there's a certain amount of stuff that hasn't been proven that we just intuitively know before. So we've been pretty methodical about kind of the risk profile. But yeah, so uh, still front, you know, the introduction was made by uh, uh, my banker at the time, and Jurgen and I hit it off, and he's a great guy, very talented CEO, and uh, kind of has his eye on exactly, knows exactly what he wants, and he's clearly a master fundraiser and doing some very good um, kind of financial instrumentation and pulling the right levers to execute these deals. So my CTO, Clayton Stark, became the president. We shut down operations in San Francisco, moved the headquarters to <clears throat> Victoria, Canada, to kind of make a, a nice, tidy, neat little package uh, for Stillfront to, to digest and acquire. And so Kickside of Brand lives on with that. But you know, I'd say you know, the spirit and the you know, creative horsepower of, of what we did originally is, is about to be seen again and what's soon going to be globally launched in about two months so the core team from kicksai has now moved on to your new company like you mentioned global worldwide um and yep as kicksai you guys took advantage of the paradigm shift i don't know if you can call it a paradigm shift but i think in many ways it is uh of facebook gaming uh then mobile gaming came out you guys seem like had some issues at kicksai adapting to it uh now global worldwide is taking advantage of that and uh we're now seeing i don't know if th- these are shifts i don't know how long they're gonna kind of last for and you're, you're you're a great person to ask about this but we're seeing you know ar getting involved with things like pokemon go uh, we are seeing now these pseudo kind of consoles where like Apple TV plus uh, your phone or plus just a controller and people playing these mobile games on a big screen. Um, 
what are your thoughts about the future of I don't want to say casual gaming, but the future of like free to play, mid core, non hardcore gaming is going to look like? What sort of paradigm shifts do you think we can expect that are going to really shake up the industry? Um, I honestly don't know. Um, it's kind of one of those things where when it happens, you've got to learn to spot it. I don't see anything happening in a classic paradigm shift other than you know what's going on right now with COVID-19, everybody's staying at home more. That's going to be developing a new consumer pattern where it's just the entire gaming industry, the tide will continue to rise. And you know it, it, it is right now. Everybody out there is seeing increased playtime and retention. Um, the audience has expanded. You know, gaming, you know, free-to-play gaming 10 years ago was, I would say, a redheaded stepchild of the gaming industry. Now it's the dominant economic, you know, you know it's the dominant economic, dominant economic model of, of the entire market. <clears throat> so it's here to stay. I don't, I'm, I'm sure there's going to be, yeah, a lot of people talk in absolutes, like, oh, things are moving to, um, you know, non-premium currency or subscription-based or this, and it's more about skins. And No, there's room for a lot of stuff. And the, the total market is expanding in general. And yeah, there's going to be other Fortnites, but there's also going to be more Backyard Monsters and right. Clash of Clans, and, you know, more Ebony's, and whether you like it or not, more Game of Wars. Um, or Candy Crush, and new stuff that you never thought possible. I mean, the, the market is absolutely huge. I think just the mobile gaming market now is about $100 billion a year. And that might even be underestimated. It's like over three times the size of the movie business. Um, I mean, it is the de facto entertainment medium, you know, and it's only going to get bigger, especially with this. Uh, you know, gaming is... <clears throat> gaming is the number one, you know, source of, of entertainment for <laughs> billions of people around the globe, and that is not going to change. If anything, what's going on right now just strengthens that. For sure. And all sorts of new, say, habits are being formed uh, with this experience. I mean, even when all the lockdowns get lifted, people aren't going to immediately start going back to doing what they were doing before. They're going to probably stay at home more. I mean, they're. Hey, you know, I kind of like being at home. I kind of like sitting on my couch and playing this game. Um, it's not going to be like a light switch and go back to where it was. So I'd say that's really kind of the shift that's happened. It's just kind of strengthened the overall business. And um, investors and other potential entrepreneurs need to take note. I mean, other people can't afford to spend on advertising right now. So you've got advertising that's gotten cheaper. Uh, you've got more potential players and users. I mean, it's a, it's a recipe for massive success for basically everybody in the um, When are you guys launching your first title? Uh, so it's been in test market for the last six months and will be global and then hopefully by the end of, end of June. So just around the corner. Awesome. Is that going to be iOS and Android? Yeah. And definitely have the ability to put on other platforms. Don't know what we're going to do yet, but have it everywhere. But yeah, you know, right now it's just iOS and Android. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we're wishing you the best of luck with the launch and uh, we'll be sure to include the link uh, into the show notes uh, if it launches before this episode goes live. Uh, thanks a lot for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe and share it with your friends. Also tag a founder you'd like to see on the show. This podcast is brought to you by Startup Soft. 
To learn more, visit startupsoft.org.